G'day and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode we talk about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interacted with this ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists, underwater photographers, citizen scientists, scuba divers, and anyone with an intense passion for marine life. My name's Matt Testoni, and I'm all of the above. And joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures Podcast is zoologist Ollie Dove. And we're going to be talking all about sheer waters. Welcome to the show, Ollie. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. No worries. And just before we start also, I asked Ollie what she wanted to be kind of like mentioned as on the show. And she had a very good answer. What was it? A zoologist. (laughs) (laughs) Had to include that. (laughs) All right. So get us started by telling us how you kind of got involved in sheer waters. Ooh. That's a fun question because it sort of is a, it's almost a decade and a half long story. I knew I wanted to be a zoologist since I was around 15. I wanted to work with animals, but not as most people around me wanted to be a vet. I was like, no, sick animals aren't for me, but very much want to work with all kinds of animals. And then in my undergraduate class, I studied zoology and I really liked the study of avian flight, but almost more from a science media and science communication. So I did, instead of a research honours, my equivalent was actually writing a children's book about a pigeon learning to fly. (laughs) So very different to what I do now. But then I tapped out of academia. I was like, it's not for me, but ended up coming back in to do a master's. And during that master's, I went to Madagascar to study plovers, which is, I studied three species of plovers and they're a shorebird. And I loved it I loved the field work I loved working with the birds and I was like yes I want to do more of this I want to study more birds and I think I am ready to go back and do a PhD and I wanted to come back to Australia so I'm originally from the UK and while I studied abroad here during undergrad and came back for a year after my bachelor's I was desperate to come back for longer so I was looking at a lot of PhD projects here and one thing led to another and I ended up at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies and so I currently study the behavior of short-tailed shearwaters and little penguins. That's so cool. Mm. So let's get into what exactly a shearwater is because Mm. if you don't they're a seabird Mm -hmm. and that's the main thing I think a lot of people would know but like kind of run us through everything from like how they're different to other seabirds Mm. to like what's really special about them what what are they exactly well shockingly before I started my PhD I actually had never heard of a shearwater which I think surprises a lot of people because when you work in the world of seabirds there's a sort of an expectation that you know everything about every single seabird, which I can 100% confirm is not true. <laughs> so I had never heard of a shearwater and they're neither a set of shears nor are they water. But they are this wonderful type of bird and the short-tailed shearwater, or the fancy scientific name being Ardena tenurostris, say that five times fast. But what's exciting about them is that they are not big at all. From the end of their tail to the bill, they're not that much more than your regular ruler, 30 centimeter ruler. They're not particularly big, but they 
do one of the largest migrations of all seabirds. So they breed here in Australia and Tasmania every year. They're actually incredibly abundant. They're one of the most abundant seabirds in Australia and they breed in their colonies on islands around mainlands in the winter time they actually migrate all the way up past Japan to the Bering Sea which is a huge migration and they do it on mass and when they return one thing that local Tazis listeners might know about them is that sometimes you find these collections called wrecks which is where a lot of birds have washed up altogether on the shoreline because they've starved on their way back. And so when I started my PhD in 2019, there had been a particularly large mass mortality. And sometimes it's unfortunately, it's just as it is, but it can also be a signal of how much prey they managed to find on their journey, uh, their body condition when they left the Northern Hemisphere. There are different factors. But when they're breeding here in Tasmania... Another really cool thing about them is that I study their local foraging in the waters around their islands and around southeast Tassie, but they sometimes go on field trips themselves to Antarctica and they can get all the way to Antarctica and back in just two weeks, which, as I said, they're not a big bird, but they are an incredible flyer and they're also an incredible diver, so they can kind of do the best of both worlds. Yeah, wow. It's amazing to think they go to the Arctic Circle with like Japan and Siberia and Antarctica. Like that just yep. blows my mind. So like I've got so many questions, but <laughs> why are they going to Antarctica to feed, I presume? What are they eating? Yes. So they eat, their diet is a mixture of your krill, your fish species. And their two main provisioning strategies during the breeding season are those short local trips and those long Antarctic trips. There's the theory that is around these two trips is that the short local trips are mostly for provisioning their young. So earlier on in the chick rearing, the shearwaters actually have a really set schedule and they tend to lay their eggs all at the same time. So studying them is actually quite useful because you know when there's going to be chicks around. Um, but earlier on when the chicks are smaller, they'll be doing, they're more likely to be going in local waters because they can come back regularly to the chick. Like when a chick's young, you ca- you can't really leave it for two weeks. You have to be feeding it more regularly than that. But as the breeding season goes on, the adult's own body condition because they'll have been using up the food that they find more for their young, they need to have a bit of me time. They need to have some R&R. And so those Antarctic trips are theorized to be more for aiding in their own body conditioning. And the Antarctic krill that they have, you can see lots of pink poo in the colony when they come back. It's quite funny. But it's a really good resource for them. Uh-huh. And do they still feed their chicks when they come back? Or Yeah, probably, but... It depends how much is still sort of around or they might do another little local trip before coming back to the colony. So shearwaters, you might have heard of the term a raft. So that's when there's a whole big group of seabirds in the water all together and you can just see them bobbing yeah. about. Um, yeah, they look like debris or like, what's the word for like sh- the wood 
like driftwood driftwood yes oh, exactly cool. so from afar they just look like clumps of driftwood but yeah so they might then come back from one of those trips hang out from a raft do a bit more local foraging and then go back to the chick or they might go straight through that's the thing with zoology while we can study a few individuals at a time there is still always going to be the difference between how each shearwater acts yeah and and so they live on islands. Do you think that there are differences between the groups on the islands? Yeah, quite possibly. So I study one island in particular. So I kind of only really know about my beloved wedge island birds. And even within the wedge island birds, I study one particular part of that colony. Um, there's about 25,000 breeding pairs since the last estimate. And I unsurprisingly have not met every single one of those 50,000 birds. But yeah, there's very likely to be differences and another exciting thing about shearwater is that they return to the same island each year so there's an island off flinders island where they've been actually been studying the colony there for 70 years and there's a really common practice in ornithology is banding of birds so that's when a bird is big enough you can put a metal band on the leg with an id which means for the rest of its life if it's ever court you can see what the bird is who the bird is and shearwater bands are really awful to put on because they're a funny shape they're like an an awful oval shape (laughs) whereas most bird bands are round and easier but the exciting thing is with that colony because it's been going for 70 years and the birds return to the same colony every year they're able to track families for several generations and it's this huge demographic study and in ecology, 70 years worth of continuous data is a very rare thing. What have they found? Like, what's a big thing they've found from set, like, that you wouldn't have found on your study? One thing I can say for certain is it's not a big island. It's a very small island. So I said that Wedge Island has 25,000, an estimated 25,000 breeding pairs. This island is teeny, teeny, tiny. Maybe has 100 or something. Like, nowhere near the same scale. So... Uh, if there's a threat from a predator or if there's a mass um, death event, that kind of colony it would be at much more threat than Wedge Island. And then you'd end up with a sort of bottleneck of genetics going forward and all of those things. So I think the only thing I, I know conclusively about that island is that it needs higher protection. or Because it's yeah. smaller. So Yeah, it's more vulnerable. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ah, cool. And so what I really want to know is we're talking about these islands and they're studying, but what's it like actually like working with the birds or like banding them or being there? Like, tell us like some, yeah, tell us what the experience is like. Oh my gosh, it's my favorite question. I love talking about fieldwork. I could talk about fieldwork for forever. So stop me at any point. But uh, listeners, you can't see, but I have some scars on my arms from birds. And so this one, there's one on my left from a penguin bite and wow. then one on my right from a shearwater claw um, so they're like yeah, they're like quite like five to ten ooh. centimeter like little scars like yeah. up and down the arm that's there's one that's a nice little zigzag like harry potter's lightning bolt over there <laughs> yeah so that's what it's like working with them but i love it it's because they are burrowing birds so short-tailed shearwaters actually live underground and so when you're obviously it's all done with ethics and permits i would never suggest to anyone that you should just go out and do this because that's wrong for a multitude of reasons but if there is a shearwater that you're studying and 
you need to take it out of the burrow, you kind of, you put your hand in and you have to remove the bird. And that brings about scars. And I have a bunch of photos of me in bushes and in a myriad of positions because trying to balance my weight. And she orders a great diggers as well. So sometimes they have a little U-bend in the burrow that you have to get round. Um, and their bill is actually a hook bill. While their bite isn't as strong as the penguins that I work with, they can do a nasty like dig in that the penguins don't do. The penguins is like a firm, whereas the shearwaters are a dig. So they're the specifics of what they feel like. And I just have to, I'm just trying to imagine it. So mm. you've put your hand in there and it's the bill, the hook bill that's getting you. And I presume you can't really see, like, is it just no. a blind arm into a burrow? Yeah, it is. And do you know, do you know if they're in there when every time not or not? always, no. So we, you tend to, because obviously Tasmania has a few snake species as well. And I've worked on a couple of islands where there are known snakes. We, you tend to go in with a stick very slowly. So you tap around the entrance and you tap a little deeper, deeper. You obviously don't shove it in because then you could hit the shearwater. So it's a very delicate, soft move. They say, I've never come across a snake in a burrow, but they say it often feels cold and damp. And if there's a bird in there, there is no snake. So it's nice when you know there's a bird in there. And shearwaters, they have this wonderful depending on what part of the season it is when it's closer to the incubation so they're looking after their egg still they have this little a very fine tap 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 dance you have so if you're lying down on the ground and the burrow is longer than the hand and the stick and you can't quite know if there's a bird in there you might hear the tap 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 and you can hear that they're in there which is pretty awesome and a penguin just for comparison they have shallower burrows and they squawk so loudly. So you know immediately if it's a penguin burrow, but for a shearwater, you could be there for longer. Oh, wow. So so when you actually go to these burrows, it could be a penguin one from like the surface. You could be mm-hmm. like, oh, is it a penguin or a shearwater? Yep. So the amazing thing about those two species is that they have overlapping colonies. They actually live sympatrically with one another. And I've seen some really funny... Uh, rental disputes between the two species across my time one adult penguins and adult shearwaters they return at night time to the colony and so that's when we mostly work and I was walking in the colony one time and I came across it was so funny but there was these two I sort of call them teenager penguin chicks because they're a bit older they're sitting outside they're loitering waiting for mum and dad to bring them food. Um, And then the adult came home and they were having a big squabble. But then a shearwater needed to pass them because the penguin burrow was on top of the shearwater burrow. It was like a block of apartment flats and the shearwater had to try and get past these rowdy teenage penguin chicks. And then the adult was having a go at the shearwater and the shearwater was like, just let me get home. My chick needs feeding. (laughs) That's fantastic. Mm. I love it. Like a little bird Mm. apartment block with a bit of a... With a bit of a fight. So, but one, like, so because the, the burrows, like, are, like, almost two metres. Do they ever steal each other's burrows? Oh, for sure. The penguins would steal the shearwater burrows more than the shearwaters would steal the penguins, I would think, because penguins are a bit more of an aggressive bird and shearwaters can dig well. And because they can fly, they don't have to walk from the water to the burrow each time. So 
while the colonies overlap, the penguin burrows are closer to the water, mm. whereas the shearwaters are on the higher, uh, my, my island, wedge <laughs> island, I should say, uh, is up on a slope. So you'll see the shearwaters will just sort of drift upwards. And I think it would be really interesting or it's a shame that in the 70-year data set, they didn't actually measure the depth of the burrows because it would have been really cool to see if the influence there are a few studies on the human influence of investigated disturbance on seabirds and i wonder if burrows in a colony that's regular visited regularly visited by humans if those burrows are getting deeper ah so you think they're digging further in to avoid people like yourself with sticks and yep. there yeah exactly because ah. sometimes you go and you need to work with um, a particular nest and you can hear the bird digging to get away from you oh wow and they and do they have the same nest? Because they have the same partner most years, don't they? Yes, and I think there is nest reuse from year to year. But obviously, well, not obviously, sorry. Sometimes in different colonies, the ground is very weak. And the main risk that we have when we're moving through the colonies, the main risk that we pose on the birds is collapsing burrows, which is a horrible a horrible instance it's something that happens to every shearwater researcher at one time and you sort of you have to dig it out immediately but sometimes the ground is very weak that's why on wedge island we have a particular section of the island that we know is safe to work in because other parts the ground is just too weak you have to sort of be crawling around on all fours um, oh, wow. so yeah so from year to year when the birds return from their migration the nest that they previously used might not be viable anymore or it might yeah wow i've just so many questions about nests <laughs> but i also want to talk about so once they've like had their chick and then they migrate back how long does the migration go for and like are they eating on the way i know you kind of said that yes but tell us a bit more yes so i don't know extensively about the migration they would be eating on the way back because it is a long journey they're arriving back in tassie maybe november time i have some collaborators that study what they're doing in the northern hemisphere but i i don't know the particular dates of when they leave there and then come back so i don't know the conclusive answer uh, well i've got another one for you mm -hmm. when they go north mm -hmm. do, do, where do they sleep like because they don't have a burrow or uh, in rafts or in the water, so they're yeah. they're not flying up to like Japan and Siberia and landing on the shore or an well, island. They they're probably do. I think they do use the islands up there as well. Um, but as I said, I don't know particularly about the northern hemisphere use. The funny thing about doing a PhD is that you end up knowing an unreasonable <laughs> amount of a very niche bit of science. Um, and so yeah, there's a lot about the short shorties that uh, eludes me. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. How about their diving? Do you mm. know much about their diving? Or like, tell us, like, because I was reading that they eat both from like foraging on the surface, but also from diving. Tell us a yes. little bit about that. So diving is what I study. Woohoo. And I love to say that I'm Ollie Dove, or you could say Ollie Dove into <laughs> diving behavior of birds. You know, there's a lot of puns available with the name. But yes, so they do do surface feeding as well as well as that diving. So they're pelagic feeders, so they feed in the open water. And they've been recorded to dive maybe up to 70 meters. Of the birds that I've collected data from, uh, my 
deepest one was 52 meters. So they're getting 50 over 50 meters below sea level, but most of their feeding occurs within the top 20 meters of the water column. There's several different types of dives that you can do. You can do that, you're sort of bopping about on the surface and then you do a sort of duck dive or there's the plunge dive from flying in they also have this sort of the movement where you're moving slower and sort of investigating an area before you find a good prey spot one thing that I'm trying to do in my PhD is classify the underwater behaviors because we can't see what we're doing they're doing we're not out there with them but you can attach these devices called accelerometers to their backs as well as GPS and pressure sensors. And from those three bits of data, we can record where they're diving. And we can also draw up these things called dive profiles. Various different papers have classified various different species with various different types of dive types. There is no sort of set golden standard of movement underwater. But in general, you have dives. The easiest way to classify them is that you have V dives, so down and up immediately. U dives, which look like a U, so they're like a V, but more gradual. And W dives, so you go down, you do wiggle behavior or oscillate on the the deepest section of your dive and then come back up. And the V and U dives can suggest more traveling or searching behavior whereas the w dives might be more prey capture attempt okay so like the w dives is maybe when there's like a school of fish and they're like yeah seeing it they're like i've got this whereas the u dive mm-hmm. is like maybe they're kind of chasing a squid or something yeah, or just looking around the area yeah. yep you can definitely see it's very exciting when you see a massive u dive that went to like 40 meters and you're just like wow that bird was just chilling now and just doing a big search but then yeah the w dives when you can see a bird's moving very quickly up and down in different directions that does suggest that it's chasing something yeah and like how long do these dives go for well the 52 meter dive that i mentioned before was around 90 seconds so that was also the longest dive that i have on record but a dive can be as short as four seconds most of them would be under a minute long because then you I mean a shearwater is eventually going to run out of oxygen and also they have to overcome their own buoyancy there's various factors which means that they won't be able to stay underwater indefinitely and so they've dived down they've gotten all wet they've come back to the surface can they then fly off straight away again or Um, how does that work yeah they do this sort of funny run along the surface to get to take off sort of thing yeah it is funny watching them try and take off on land because they're not graceful on land their their wings stick out they're they're so ungraceful and yet when they're flying beautifully graceful flying and and diving because i've seen some video captures of them diving they look amazing but then it's that takeoff stage and i recently went to matsika island to do some volunteering there and there's this one section where it's an old helicopter pad but basically there's a track and then the birds take off but they take off from there in the hundreds and the thousands so we went out at about 4 a.m and we sat there to watch the birds fly and it was just incredible it was like 
watching something from Star Wars where all like the X-Wings take off at the same time because they just all in their hundreds ran down this ramp and then like ran off to the edge of this cliff and cliff and took off. And sometimes they didn't make it. Sometimes they had to then come back and go again. Oh, wow. Like, so when you say they didn't make it, do they like, what happened? Like sort of maybe would flap a couple of times and didn't have enough speed or was like, I, I feel like chickened out would be the wrong phrase to use because they're not a chicken, <laughs> but maybe rethought their actions and came yeah. back. Wow. And so once they've like gone off and they're flying, I was reading that they're kind of called shearwaters or shearwaters because they kind of shear across the waves, mm. don't they? Like how does, how does that work? Or describe them flying for us. Ooh. So the main times that I've seen shearwaters flying is when they come back at night time. So shearwaters have a fairly reliable, if the sun sets around 8 a.m., you'll start seeing a few. And then by oh, 8 p.m., sorry, by 8.15 and 8.20, bam, the sky's full of them. Because there's sort of that sweet spot where there's enough light to come back, but not enough light to be predated upon by bigger what, birds. Yeah, what's <laughs> predating on them? Is it like uh, eagles? Or? Yeah, yeah, so... Yep, those eagles can grab them. And unfortunately, we found carcasses amongst the colony. That's There's a couple of wedge-tailed eagles that live on wedge as well, which is not why it's called wedge. <laughs> it's shaped like a wedge. There's a lot of wedges. But yeah, and once came across a half-eaten one, which was very unfortunate, um, very sad. But eagles got to eat just like shearwater's got to catch fish. So, you know, cycle, circle of life and all that. But yeah, so they come back and then... When they're in the air, you can have hundreds above your head and yet they don't collide They and they don't make much sound either. They're perfectly silent and they just, it looks like the sky is filled with massive flies or it's like a huge swarm, but in a very swift and graceful version. Yeah, it sounds kind of like eerily beautiful to Oh, watch. it's gorgeous. It's my favorite part of the field work um and it only really lasts five ten minutes wow um, of when it's like at its peak with the most amount of birds that you'll see um and then they sort of land on the colony um on the bushes and they go into their burrows and then they get real loud <laughs> very loud they lose all that grace there's a lot of squawking potentially partner talking to partner sort of thing and then around 4 a.m again the colony comes alive and it's squawk squawk time. Wow, and because all those birds that are coming back together, they'd be like coming from different places, wouldn't they? Yeah, or they might be, have been offshore in a raft together. Sort of they'll come together at the end of the day and then fly in together, strength in numbers sort of thing. So again, using penguin as a comparison, the shearwaters dives that I've seen, they don't, necessarily all forage together as a cohort they go some will go up the east coast some will go down to the southwest and they sort of dive within these bouts so like groups of dives whereas the penguins will all go to the same area or at least the the penguins that i've recorded they go to the same area and they dive throughout the day on the way there and on the way back so the two birds are behaving very differently but yeah both return at night <laughs> wow that's so cool well just before we kind of finish up we've got a few last things mm -hmm. but if people want to see shearwaters what's the or short-tailed shearwaters what's mm -hmm. the easiest way to do so oh that's such a good question i 
feel like go on a bird watching cruise to see them at sea but now is not a good time of year because it's winter so they've gone up north so you'd want to be going between that november to march period oh wow so if you live near like a shearwater colony you can actually mm. see them all coming back even if you're not on the island oh yeah but i because wedger island is just off nubina and roaring beach um and i think if you were in white beach you'd be able to see them i mean through binoculars i think you'd have to be in the water closer to yeah. the island to have the same effect but yeah and then the NRE website might have more advice on where Shearwater colonies mm. are and those sort of things. And I know down on Bruni they do penguin talks, so you can watch the penguins come back. They come back around two hours after nightfall, a bit later than the Shearwaters. But I reckon they'd probably, yeah, there'd definitely be some organisations around coastlines. Yeah. And do you have any cool facts about shearwaters? Mm, cool facts. We've covered quite a few already, I guess, like yeah, how deep they dive and all that stuff. Yeah. But like, or anything really unusual where you're just like, this oh. made no sense. Well, one thing I forgot to mention, I haven't mentioned at all, is that they're also called mutton birds because they're a commercially harvested bird. So they're hugely important um, for the Aboriginal community and they've been harvested for years and so each year there's annual counts of the shearwater populations um, and from that annual count you can have a, a quota for how many birds can be harvested so on flinders harvesting is a big thing and you have to have a license to be a mutton birder but yeah so i am yet to actually eat mutton bird so it's all for food they're harvesting like yeah for food. and oils i think because so it's the juvenile shearwaters that get harvested because they're just sitting in their burrow and they've got no defense. And I've heard that the mutton bird meat is very fatty because <laughs> they're so funny. Shearwater chicks, they look like they have a mullet. They're like literally just a ball of fluff and they have this really shaggy hairstyle. It's so funny. They're so cute, but they're so big. They get to over double the adult's weight by the end of being reared because there's a period where they're no longer being fed yet while they're getting their adult feathers so they're huge to the point where sometimes if you need to weigh a juvenile and it's later on in the season you can barely get them out of the burrow <laughs> because they fill the whole thing wow that's, yep. that's that that is a cool fact yeah and so because they're fatty their oils are also used in various things but yeah but there's a limit to how many can be harvested each year so the population isn't can continue Wow. Well, it's been pretty awesome chat. If anyone wants to like hear more about Shearwaters or learn more about your research or mm. listen to the podcast, which you are a host of, mm. how can they do that and where should they go and what should they do? Well, as you said, yep, I'm involved in a podcast called That's What I Call Science. So each week I'm part of a bigger team um, and each week we interview either research professional or researcher here in Tasmania that works in either science, technology, engineering, maths, or medicine. Um, and we really like to focus on uh, Tasmanian work to big up what we're doing here on the island. And so our website is thatscience.org with two S's in the middle, or if you search that's what I call science or that science Taz on any social medias, you'll find us. Or my own Instagram is 
OLS underscore Dove. Awesome. Well, thanks heaps for being on the show. Mm, thank you so much for having me. Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by myself, Matt Testoni. If you've liked the show, be sure to jump onto whatever service you're listening through and leave us a review. And don't forget to check out the Sea Creatures Instagram, which is Sea Creatures underscore podcast. Production assistance by George McGrath and music by the talented and amazing Dan Musil. If you like the show, jump onto our Patreon account or our Buy Me A Coffee account with links in the notes of the show. This just helps with our monthly running costs. Coming up next time on the Sea Creatures podcast, we're going to be talking all about the White's Seahorse, a highly endangered seahorse found in Sydney Harbour. This has been the Sea Creatures podcast. Over and out.